1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Hi, I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which by the way is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Kathleen Shine, who's the author of the internationally best-selling novels The Three Weissmans of Westport, The Love Letter, and The New Yorkers, as well as award-winning They May Not Mean To, But They Do, and other novels. Two of her books have been made into films. Her latest novel, is the Grammarians. She's the winner of the Farrow Grumley Award and is a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books. A graduate of Barnard and a former New Yorker, she currently lives in Venice, California with her partner. So welcome, Kathy. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you.
3: I'm happy to be here. Also, I love the I love the name Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Moms don't have time to do anything, so... It's true. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> but you can make the time if that's, you really that try. Is, that's what you have to do. And hopefully moms have time to listen to podcasts about books, so I, at least there's that. Absolutely. <laughs> at least then they can save some time trying to figure out what right, to read. Right, they can...
3: Multitask.
0: Yes, exactly. So you are the author of several books, including this new one, The Grammarians, which was so good. And I mean, I feel like the dictionary in this book and like all of these things are so real to me still, having put it down like two weeks ago. Tell me what inspired you to write The Grammarians, which has been called an enchanting comic love letter to sibling rivalry and the English language.
3: Well, what usually happens, inspiration is a very strange thing. I, I don't even think it's the the right word. I, I, I always feel like I'm sort of wandering around banging my head against things, and, and one of them turns out to be a door that, <laughs> that opens. And after every book, I've written 11 books, after every book, I think, okay, I've had 11 ideas. I'm not going to have a 12th. And One of these days, it's going to be true that I'm not going to have an idea for the next book. But so far, they, you know, I bang my head around enough and and an idea comes. This, I I really wanted to write about two people having a feud about language. And I wasn't sure what shape that was going to take. At first, it was going to be about translation. But the only language I know is English, so that didn't seem very practical. (laughs) And then someone reminded me of Ann Landers and Dear Abby, who were identical twins and had a long, long feud. They each had kind of warring advice columns. And so I first thought, no, I don't want to write about twins. It's too difficult. I don't understand them. I don't, I'm not a twin. I don't even know any twins very well. But then once that idea got in my head, it it just it just kept the, the twins kept kept at me. And I thought, no, no, I yeah, I this is it. This is what I have to write about. And then I was given as a gift to kind of cheer me up because I was having a lot of trouble writing and I was in a post-election funk. Someone gave me a book called English as they English As She Is Spoke, which is a hilarious book that was a kind of viral, it was a sensation in the 19th century. It was supposedly, it was a phrase book for Portuguese travelers in England. But Every phrase was insane. I mean, it was so badly trained. It didn't make any sense. And it became a kind of comic sensation. And Mark Twain wrote an introduction to it. And it was so funny. And it just made me realize I could write about one of my passions, which is language and linguistics and words. Did you have a dictionary like the one you write about in this book? I didn't. I was not a dictionary fiend. I did have, we did have the Book of Knowledge, which was um, about, I don't know, 30 volumes. It was kind of a, an encyclopedia that I, that I loved and used to sit and, and read. But my favorite word book, even more than the dictionary, which I do love now, is, is the Thesaurus I keep it by my bed. I use it all the time, especially as I've aged and the words are farther and farther afield and I'm desperately searching for the right word. But I just love reading it. It just, dictionaries and a thesaurus kind of, open up all the possibilities not just of plot or narrative, but of every single word. And a word can then kind of lead you to the next word, which then leads you to, oh, this is what the story's about. So when I, at at the beginning of each chapter of this book, there's a dictionary definition of a word from Dr. Johnson's dictionary, which was the first really important comprehensive dictionary in English. And, um, I did that after I had finished the book. So, when, so with each chapter, I then looked for a word in Dr. Johnson's dictionary that would work at the beginning of that chapter. And a lot of times what happened was after I found the word, that's when I understood what the chapter was really about and what it was doing. So it works both ways. Words can open up ideas and they can also encapsulate an idea that you weren't even sure you had wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was words. it was fun too. That part that was the best I think part. It's a good challenge for anyone writing a book to pick one
0: word to sum up a chapter. As, you know? It's
3: yeah, like- yeah. Well, that, and that's also it's very hard when people say, "What is your book about?" I always kind of stumble and bumble, and and I'm not sure what to say because, of course, well, for a writer for the author in particular, I think it's hardest to know what the book is about for me anyway because I don't start out. With you know a theme, mm-hmm. I start out with some characters and and some kind of conflict that I want to, or some kind of dynamic that I want to explore. So then, when someone says, "Well, what is the book about?" you know, I say, "Oh uh, well, uh, <laughs> it's about twins and." Words and family and relationships. I mean it, it becomes I mean, it's rather about it's, it's about life. It's about life. It's about life it's a coming of age. It's, yes, it is it's, it's a funny coming of age novel in a way. And it's about in some ways, you could say it's about a kind of authoritarianism versus kind of anarchy on the two most extreme ends of of language. And so there were a lot of things going on in my mind or in my subconscious as I was writing it. but So interesting. Yeah, mostly it's about words and twins <clears throat> and sisters trying to differentiate themselves from each other when they look exactly the same.
0: I feel like the point of the book at which they really differentiate is when they have children and they decide to handle that in very different ways. I feel like up until then they've been running similar courses in life and yet one decides to be a stay-at-home mom, she's a teacher, and says, okay, I love it. I don't want to miss a single word that my baby says. And the other one has a child much later and is doesn't want to give up the rat race in a way. Right. And you said, I have some quote. So Daphne, one of the twins, says, having so much work to do was essential, she thought, because babies distort the mind. They tire you out and hypnotize you and trick you into superhuman efforts and sleep deprivation that wear you down even more until you are completely under their tiny thumbs and praying to remain there. And so and Laurel on the other hand is the one who doesn't want to miss a minute. So I was just wondering for you like did you identify more as as a Daphne, this high achieving, you know, columnist or more as a Laurel who wanted well, to give it up to stay home
3: or some sort of mixture? Well, first of all, I think both of them are under the tiny thumb and want to stay there to a certain extent and the question is how much. For me, personally, it was it was I was very lucky. Um, First of all, what I do, my work, I can do at home. So that's already a huge privilege. But I do, you know, I remember, well, my first book, let's put it this way. Okay. My first book took me one year to write. My second book took me seven years to write. (laughs) And that's because I had two little children. And as I was sitting and working, I would hear the children playing with the babysitter, and I'd think, no, 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 this is this is wrong. This is the wrong, no. Why is she having all this fun with my children that I want to have fun with and my deathless prose, The World Can Wait a Few Years for My Next Book, but this I will never be able to see again. Well, that's a huge privilege, and that was a blessing for me. Not everyone has that opportunity. So I under you know, I realize that I I know so many people who would love to stay home with their children but can't, and I know other people who, who have enough of that when they get home from work, mm-hmm. and, and and it's a balance for each for each person if economically you can pull it off, and so those two things are you know a real conflict in the real world, but. Daphne and, and and Laurel manage to sort of inch their way over to the amount of time that they need with their children. And I think, and don't forget, both of them work at home. Right. It makes a huge difference. Yes. So. It also means you're never done with your work. It means procrastination is everywhere, opportunities for procrastination, you know, and suddenly you're you're doing the laundry, which you hate to do, but... It's better than writing, and so there there are pitfalls to that as well. It's, it's, You know what? It's hard to be a mother, and again, a privilege. I could talk all day.
0: <laughs> I, I'm not even going to, like, take up that ball and run with it because I want to hear more about you. But yes, I, I would agree yeah. with that. You know, it's funny. You start when you talk about the twin's own mother, and you say— Sally was a dominating mother when she could be, but it was all in self-defense, which was something the twins clearly understood. And I just love that line, thinking that, like, as a parent, you're just, you're just, like, trying to protect yourself.
3: You know, it's so yeah. funny. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about that, that question last night, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's one I, I don't really want to go into. I don't have that much to say about it. But as I we, was can thinking, no, no, sorry, we can no, skip no, it. I'm sorry No, no, no. As I was thinking about it, it, it just made me laugh because as soon as I read it, my the the visual that came to me, the image, was of me running around the house, chasing both children, you know, screaming at them, doors slamming. And I thought, well, wait, is that defensive or <laughs> offensive? <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I don't, unlike Sally the mother in this book, I did not feel excluded. My children did not have that kind of, the the twins in this book have such a tight relationship that Sally is kind of baffled by them and feels a little bit excluded. Mm -hmm. And that changes. I don't want to give away the end of the book, but by the end of the book, she's kind of understood certain things that make that Less painful. And when I finished the book, I thought, well, you know, one of the things I think maybe I was unconsciously doing in this book was making a statement to my own children, which was you boys better be friends with each other after I die, or I will come back and haunt you.
0: Have have you have you let them know that? I've said it. <laughs> what what they have to say about that? They say
3: what they always say, oh mom. <laughs> Are
0: they friends now? They're friends. They're
3: friends. Yeah. They're, friends. <laughs> they're, they're They're getting over their childhood what shall I call them? Michigas. Michigas. <laughs> that is the right word. <laughs>
0: And actually, in the book, you say, which a line that I loved, you said, this is what words do, Laurel realizes. They call out from the page and force you to listen. No, they allow you to listen. So tell me about that a little bit.
3: Well, I think words are very powerful. And I think they're powerful as you say them or write them. But they're also powerful as you hear them or read them. And I, for me, reading is as creative an act. And I think it is for most people. I think readers are as creative as involved in the same kind of creative act that writers are involved in because you're bringing everything you have to it and making of it what you will or what you can or what you need to. So I think what what she's saying there is that if you can open yourself up to words, they have a tremendous amount that you're not even expecting to give you and to show you, that they open up a whole world, words, worlds, (laughs) either one. So people have
0: called you a modern-day Jewish Jane Austen. Thoughts on this?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am Jewish, so that part's right. There was a period when I think if you were a woman, I mean, don't forget, I've been doing this for 30 years, so things have changed a little bit in the way, and that quote is from um, quite a long time ago. 25 years ago there was a period when if you were a woman and you wrote a funny comedy of manners you were compa- and it was good you were compared to Jane Austen that's just that uh, that was the signal that you know this is an intelligent book and it's funny and it's okay for you to read it and so of course I'm immensely flattered to have had that said about Me, But, you know, there was only one Jane Austen. There will always be only one (laughs) Jane Austen. And we're all, anyone who has ever written a book that is funny and about a family and has any insights at all owes everything to Jane Austen. So I'll take it.
2: (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: 72 dollars a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with better help. visit betterhelp.com/ moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's slash help, moms don't have time. So can I just, like, delve into your personal life here for a little bit? Sure. So when you were younger, you were in a horrible car accident. Yes, I was. And you almost died at age
3: 16. I broke my neck when I was 16. How? What happened? We went to the movies, some friends and I, and I'd already seen the movie. That's the part that still gets me. So, I, no. I didn't really want to what see movie? the movie. It was no, I put Good, you on the It was Goodbye, Columbus. Aww. And I'd seen it, and it was good, and that was great. But I went just to be, you know, just to hang out with my friends. And then on the way back, uh, my boyfriend was driving, and he was driving very fast. We weren't drunk. We weren't high. We were just having a good time and laughing. And he was driving too fast, and he hit a stone wall. And I went through the windshield and then back again. And and um, But my favorite part of this story, which— by the way i've never really written about this particular incident and i think it's just too i've written around it there've been there's been a car accident there've been things happening in different books but it's not something i've ever used directly i think it's just too i guess traumatic i don't know but or maybe not traumatic enough to use <laughs> i'm not sure but my favorite part is i wanted to go to woodstock Okay, it was 1969. I had to go to Woodstock. I was in the hospital. I was in traction. I had things screwed into my head. because, And the doctor said, no, you cannot go to Woodstock. And I said, yes, I have to go to Woodstock. Put me in a cast, a body cast, and my friends will put me in the back of their van and we'll go to Woodstock. And he said, you cannot go to Woodstock. You have a broken neck. And I said, no, I don't. I just broke C1 and C2. And he said, that is your neck. And that combination of ignorance and arrogance is, to me, kind of embodies what adolescence and being a teenager is all about. And I often think about that and I think, wow, you were you were an arrogant little thing, weren't you? <laughs> but anyway, I, I didn't go to Woodstock, which I still I still regret. Although it did rain, <laughs> it's muddy. You would have ruined your shoes. Yeah, you know. yeah. Oh, and I was so upset. I I was in the emergency room, and you know, and I and I, and then I don't know. I my mother was there, and and I said just just. Just make sure they, they save my belt. do It's my it's my favorite belt. you know she was looking at me like and my face was all cut up and oh, you know and, and she just said, mm-hmm. It didn't didn't say, dear, you're about to die from loss of blood. I'm not worried about your belt. She just said, yes, mm, yes. She was a good mother. Yeah, I would not. Have- she was in shock. Anyway, oh I survived. You survived, and then but then
0: you had another whole traumatic thing where you yes. were taking prednisone to combat Crohn's disease, and you ended up in the hospital for eight months when you were only aged 20 because of some side effect with your hips or something?
3: Yeah, it's called aseptic necrosis of the hips. But anyway, I was in the hospital and in rehab in a wheelchair for... A total of a year, which is a hugely long time when you're that age or any age. A but day
0: is a long time to yes, be in the hospital. A yes, year
3: is. It's true. It it was it was horrible. But I did get to watch the Watergate hearings, which were, which were at that time. This is how I you're date. You're like the Forrest Gump of the hospital. <laughs> this is how I date things. It's it's, it's, it's oh oh I oh that operation. Yeah, that and that I have written about. That was, my first book was was about that. It's a novel, but it's it's very autobiographical. And again, it's about a kind of arrogant, privileged young person who is hit with this horrible thing and somehow maintains her dignity by remaining an incredibly arrogant privileged young person throughout the whole thing. I mean, I think that's a kind of strength and it can also, you know, be a weakness. But in this case, uh, that's how she kind of hung on to life.
0: So during those stretches of time, did you turn to reading? Did you Were you able to read? Did you learn to see things through a new, I mean, you, I mean, clearly this must have affected how you saw the world. I mean, I can't you imagine, know, despite how arrogant you may think you were, <laughs> I'm sure like these experiences give you a yeah. unique lens on what happens in life.
3: You know, it's, it's interesting that you, uh, the perspective was literally different because I was horizontal mm-hmm. or I was low down in a wheelchair. And that taught me a lot about perspective. In life, not just for writing, because I I had wanted to be a, a poet when I was in high school, but I I kind of got scared off by, by how you know fabulous everyone was when I went to Sarah Lawrence, and I thought, oh, I, I'm not letting these you know these fabulous people see my poems. Get me out of here! Aww. And then I went to Barnard and studied medieval history. But yeah, my perspective, I learned about different perspectives, and I learned that one person can be suddenly in a completely different space which and at a different level literally which also changes the way you're treated when you're horizontal it doesn't matter how old you are you're just considered this sick person with no dignity and no agency and when you're young on top of that it really was it was horrendous so it did teach me about that and it was Interesting in that way. I mean, it was awful, but looking back, I learned a lot about different kinds of people. I was in a rehab, I was at the Rusk Institute with all these old people who had had strokes. And so that was very interesting. And people from all over the country. So I was exposed. I was exposed to a lot of different lives and perspectives, and that was important to me. But at the same time, I learned that you can maintain your own identity, whatever it is, even while you're sort of navigating all these different people and other people's perspectives. So it was a, yeah, it was an interesting time.
0: Do you feel like you left with a sort of seize the day Life is short mentality, or was it more just getting through that I, experience?
3: I think, in a way, yes, to a certain extent, because I really, I. But I, in a way, it made me almost more arrogant. It was, it was sort <laughs> no, of. I like, don't believe you. It was sort of. Well, I'm both. I'm both arrogant and very, you know, very, I have no self confidence. So those <laughs> things sometimes go together. But in a way, I thought. I don't think I consciously thought, but I felt like I am a superior person because I have survived this, and you have no idea what this is like. And so all of these things give you a certain amount of strength, but at the same time, it has to be tempered as you get older you start to realize that, you know, you are not a superior person. You're Mm -hmm. just a person like everybody else. And so age has tempered some of the, a lot of the arrogance. (laughs) But I think the arrogance of youth is a really interesting topic. And I think young people are both arrogant and, you know, horribly, painfully without self-confidence. And I think that combination is so poignant and interesting. So... It made me think about things like that.
0: So if we were to do like a little timeline and like put all your books like on the little timeline of your life and then put your life stories sort of <laughs> on top of it, <laughs> you started off married to a man. You have two sons. Yes. At some point you get divorced. Right. Now you're married to a woman. Yes. When did all that happen? Like point, th- put that on a little graph for me.
3: Between which books? Uh, let's see. Somewhere between Ramo's niece and she is me that all kind of took place
0: and did that just change your like tell me about that too well it of your didn't
3: life. well it was a uh, it was it was hard it was very difficult i'm very lucky in that my friends and my family were wonderful even my i mean my kids were amazing my ex-husband is just the most wonderful person we're very close still so Compared to what a lot of people go through, it was a piece of cake. But it was hell. It was, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, you grow up thinking, this is what I want. I am so lucky I have this. I had, you know, I lived in a wonderful place with a wonderful husband. I had these wonderful kids. And, and now I'm, I'm throwing this away. And so it was, it was torture. But I wasn't throwing it away. I was just changing and so, luckily, I was, I mean, both David and I worked very, very, and, and Janet, my wife now, worked very, very hard together to make things work. And since we're all good, decent people, it did work. It was kind of a miracle. Nora Ephron once said, I was not close friends with her, but friends with her. We we both had sons named Max, so I got a lot of hand-me-downs. Um, <laughs> I have some friends
0: with sons named Max. So if you continue <laughs> this trend, just let me know. Okay, I okay, have a little,
3: oh, the, the cutest, little, bin or, cutest <laughs> little sweater. But she said, I remember David and I were, were divorced, but we went to a party together for someone that we both knew. And and, and Nora sort of, you know, laughed and said, you guys have the best divorce. <laughs> and I thought, wow, coming from you, oh, that's a compliment. I'll take that. So, and we do, we we do. So oh. it was very hard and it was, the most painful thing, including everything that's ever happened to me, because it's so difficult with your kids and you're disappointing people. And it's, a, look, any divorce is the end of a kind of dream that you have when you first get married. And it's a kind of death. And so no matter how well you handle it, it's 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 very, very sad. And there's a lot of mourning that goes on. But I'm very happy now. So, And so is David. And the kids are great.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So what what do you have coming next for you? Um, I loved your little preview. We were talking in my kitchen earlier about some idea that Kathy had for a new book. But.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm playing around with an idea. I, I was, from reading a book by a 1930s, an emigre screenwriter in the 1930s who wrote a lot of the screenplays for Greta Garbo, actually, from reading a memoir... By her and also talking to a poet and rather tipsy conversation about Auden and about the idea of being minor, of a minor writer. I'm sort of piecing together, I think, maybe, you, you see how many <laughs> okay, how I'm qualifying. Right. <laughs> you got it? It's it's just I'm I'm fooling around with an idea about writing something set in Pacific Palisades, where the emigre community lived. And many of them were ended up involved with Hollywood and of writing about a fictional person in that milieu and with all of these very brilliant people, but someone who isn't as brilliant.
0: So. Sorry, sorry for these sirens, by the way. Sure, in your Pacific Palisades oh. book, there would not be the same level. No, but at my mother's
3: <laughs> apartment on 96th Street, yeah, we got the sirens.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors?
3: You know, yes, I think. Which is don't take yourself too seriously in that if you see yourself as an artist, as you start out, you will immediately start thinking you're a failed artist, unless you're a jerk. (laughs) And so, you know, it's good to kind of keep perspective and just say, I am putting some words on paper, and either they'll work out or they won't. And I'm going to write them. And then when I'm done, then I will go back and make them really good. I, I think people get very hung up on their, you know, first draft or first sentence or first chapter and keep rewriting and and feel bad about themselves. And for me, I, I feel like you have to write what you have to say and then you go back and you edit and make it really good. And also read a lot and read a lot of good books, not necessarily popular books, not even necessarily books that you like, but just books that open up different worlds and different ways of thinking. Not, not necessarily different kinds of prose, but just different ways of thinking. And that, that's, the, that's the best I can do. I mean, my first book, I wrote one page a day. Period. No matter what. Not two pages, not half a page. I just, that was the way I controlled my fear and my ego was just, I'm doing this. This is my job. And it is a job. That's the other thing that people really, if you wait around for inspiration, good good luck to you. You know, inspiration comes, but you have to be sitting there doing your job for inspiration to bother to visit you. So
0: Somebody just said, there's no such thing as plumbers black, right? You can't get writers black. Like plumbers don't, you know, you just.
3: I, I had, for the first time in my life, after over 30 years of writing books, after, 2016, I had writer's block and I was just so upset and so anxious and so distracted that anything I wrote just seemed irrelevant to the world and stupid. And why would anyone be bothered doing writing this much and certainly not reading it? And the way I conquered that, it took a long time. Well, first of all, I went to New Orleans and visited some friends. And and being in New Orleans, which is a place so where death is so pervasive, and being there when people are having parades about death, and, and I thought, oh, you know, if they can do this and have art and love and fun in the midst of all of this disaster, maybe I can do that too. So that was very inspiring. And then I sat myself down every day instead of sitting in the morning. Usually what I do is, you know, eventually I get to my work and I sit down and or lie down in my case. I write in bed <laughs> and start writing and or, or get distracted and then two hours later think, oh, my God, I haven't written anything. You know, that whole procrastination thing. Instead of that, I just at 4 o'clock in the afternoon – I sat down on the couch with a little pad that I picked up and a pencil th- that I hate which you can hardly read cuz it's got it's got such a hard lead and just wrote for about 40 minutes with a glass of bourbon on the side and I didn't look at it cuz I couldn't read it cuz it was so you know so difficult to read and I did that for about a week just to get something down without Overthinking it and without judging it, and by the end of the week, I, I had a really good chapter, which is actually in the in the book. So, wow. So sometimes you have to trick yourself, and then, but I, I, yeah, writers, there is no plumber's block, maybe, but plumbers don't have to like imagine a whole new set of pipes and what they're made out of, all new materials and different shapes, and every single time. So. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> no, I know, and I've heard that before, and yeah. I've always thought that because I've never had this problem before. Yeah, but now I get it. Yeah. It, now I now I, I've, I've now I understand it, but I also now I know how to how, how to, to get around it. Write with invisible ink <laughs> while you're drinking bourbon. Perfect. Yeah. Per-
0: perfect formula. <laughs> well, thank you so much <laughs> for sharing you. everything with moms and have time to read books. And thank
3: you. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. It's, great. Yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.